You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome back to the Skylight Books Podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Freeman, and today we are so excited to welcome Tabitha Lasley to talk about her new memoir, Sea State. Tabitha Lasley was a journalist for 10 years. She has lived in London, Johannesburg, and Aberdeen. This is her first book, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about Sea State. In her mid-30s and newly free from a terrible relationship, Tabitha Lasley quit her job at a London, London magazine packed her bags and poured her savings into a six-month lease on an apartment in Aberdeen, Scotland. She decided to make good on a long-deferred idea for a book about oil rigs and the men who work on them. Why oil rigs? She wanted to see what men were like with no women around. Thanks so much for being here, Tabitha. Thank you for having me. I guess we could start there. The question is why oil rigs and that is explored more in the book but this was an idea that you say you had for a while and then this breakup sort of pushed you to scrap that book that you'd been working on and you wanted to start over from scratch uh, and you made your way to Aberdeen and started talking to some people so what was the original seed that made you want to look at oil rigs well um, about 16, 15, 16 years ago now, I met a couple of oil workers in a bar in my hometown. Um, we are quite near Liverpool here, and any British port city will have its fair share of uh, rig workers, just because I think it's that maritime connection, you know, being mm-hmm. in proximity to the sea, it, and also the heavy industry um, near there as well, plays a part. So there are quite a few... Um, offshore workers from Liverpool in the Wirral where I'm from and I met two of them who I'm still friends with today and I was only 25 at the time and I wasn't a writer but I remember just looking at them and getting to know them and thinking that whole lifestyle it's so underrepresented nobody who works onshore really knows anything about it and it will make a great book one day but I just had to become a writer first I think. And I'm curious are civilians allowed on oil rigs? Yeah, I mean, it depends what you mean by civilians. I mean, there are people who will, like, go out and, um, you know, check the safety and things. There are people who work in the industry who have land jobs um, who will who will have to go out to rigs for various reasons. It used to be a lot easier to get on a rig um, back in the 80s and the 90s. Um, I think the rules were much more relaxed. I remember one man I interviewed telling me that when he started work offshore in the early 90s, uh, they flew like a load of... It was some sort of promotional thing. They they flew sort of um, a load a load of um, mums and wives and sisters out for the day. I think. And um, another another time, he said there was um, I can't remember like the exact person that was flying out, but he said there was a load of sort of I mean what you would have called then sort of trolley dollies. You know, sort of like heavily kind of heavily made up hostesses that they flew out for the day and things. And that sort of thing used to happen. But, you know, I think in every industry, if you talk to anyone in any industry, they'll always talk about how 
brilliantly lax things were in the past compared to these days, you know, increased regulation and everything being digitized, recorded. Yeah, it's harder these days to get out. You need to um, take a course called, well, in Britain, you need to take a course called the BOSIAT just for insurance purposes. And that course is now over a thousand pounds to take. And if you want to yeah. go out, you have to fund that yourself. I mean, anyone wanting to work offshore who hasn't got that specific experience needs to fund it themselves before they even get an interview. Um, yeah. So significant investment um, to even try and get out offshore. I'm sure not only in the oil industry, but in so many industries, people are saying that things aren't the way they used to be. Nobody was paying attention. We could do whatever we wanted. And it's kind of come full circle in a way, but a little, maybe a little ways past that, a weird kind of 180 where, yes, the regulations and safety measures are more strict, but they aren't being enforced as harshly. You mentioned talking to guys out there who say, yeah, no one's paying attention to us or things like that. And you talked about stop cards, which guys were basically just using to tattle on each other. Um, yeah, I mean, I think things um, in, a, in a time of recession and oil has been in a more or less permanent recession for the last six years now. Things will get lax, but not lax in a fun way, not lax yeah. like buying out a sort of, you know, <laughs> a load of, of trolley dollies or whatever. It will be lax in the way that like people get injured and, and mm -hmm. die because you know they're cutting corners with safety and compliance um yeah I mean that happens and again that happens in every industry in you know sort of hard times because um you know it, it's just the first thing to go um when money is tight I think um people and you know they keep people who, who are willing to cut corners and um you know sort of dance around the rules to get things done rather than the people who will stand up to management, who will stick to protocol and who will say, um, no, this isn't right. You know, in downtowns, those people become too expensive and the cost is too high to keep people at principal on. So they're the first to go to. Yeah, and a lot of the guys you talked to said, oh, well, they got transferred, but then it, they got transferred, but where did they go? And they weren't getting transferred, they were just being replaced. Well, they got, they'd either get transferred to rigs that were being decommissioned. So it was like mm -hmm. a kind of, um, I guess, a, a sacking in the future. Um, or, you know, sometimes, I mean, they have a thing in the North Sea called NRB, not required back. Companies mm -hmm. say it's apocryphal, but it isn't. And it's basically industry-wide blacklisting. So if you, you know, if you um, get known to be a troublemaker, quote unquote, then you'll find it very hard um, to get work anywhere. I wanted to ask you about the structure of the book. It's a memoir as much as it is a sort of nonfiction study. I mean, it really is, and I love the way that you were able to weave both aspects of the story together in that way because it felt very, it read like it could have been a fiction narrative and it is a little bit insane. It was your life for a while and I'm, I'm sure you feel like that as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I think one reviewer called it a prolonged moment of personal crisis, which it definitely was. Yeah. Uh, I think that um, in any life, if you've got problems that you don't address, if you keep running from them, eventually they catch up with you. You know, it's like that thing, wherever you go, you are there yeah. with you. And I've been running um, from various problems for about five years. And I thought by changing my location, I would leave those problems behind, but obviously <laughs> I, I brought my baggage with me. I just changed the setting. 
And I feel like I've been reading a lot of stories like this recently. They feel like they're lasting forever, at least to the people at the center of them. And six months is a long time, but it's also kind of short in the grand scheme of everything. And I think there's so much power in just seeing a snippet of someone's story and realizing that it doesn't need to span years or decades in order to be some grand, extraordinary story. A lot can happen in six months. Mm. Right. I mean, when we, I think when we grow and when we learn, it's a bit like the aging process. It happens all at once. And then you'll have a fallow period where nothing happens for ages and ages and ages. And then, you know, a lot of things will happen um, inside a short period of time. That's just how life goes. You know, um, experience isn't meted out, you know, in completely equal parts. So I think, you know, um, yeah, I, 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 I'm an editor by nature. You know, I, I used to be an editor on a magazine, so I'm instinctively a cutter. Uh, and I always want to try a slim volume. I think um, I heard Fran Leibowitz talking, um, I think it was on that Netflix special she did, about how with the advent of the word processor, you know, books just became longer and longer and longer. I actually think books are far too long these days, especially when authors get really famous, you know, and then you get the sort of too famous to edit syndrome. I, you know, I mean, I probably wrote about three times the amount that made it into the book, but I cut and I yeah. cut and I cut and I cut until I felt that there was nothing left to go. And actually, it, it, when it went into the um, publisher, it, it went in and it came out basically the same. And my British editor said to me, I don't like the last three pages, change the last three pages for me, which I did. Um, but apart from that, it, it wasn't changed at all because I had edited it so rigorously, yeah. you know. Some of those pages have been through 20 edits at my end before um, because that is just I think and and thinking about the sort of the sort of meta structure you know it was it was a brief window because I didn't I didn't feel the need for the narrative to be sprawling it was oh hello <laughs> it, was, um, it was just um you know it was it was a kind of a, a brief window um in which a lot happened. And um, one of the technical challenges of it was actually all the action happened in the first two months of my being at, in Aberdeen. So yeah. when I came to write it, one of the questions I had to ask was, how do I, how do I construct something into a narrative when all the action is front-loaded? Because you mm -hmm. know, to turning the pages, generally the action is sort of back-loaded, isn't it? So that's why I made the decision to tell the story of my own breakup in the very last chapter. And I loved that, that it was, you telling your story to another rig worker at that point and there was something just so tender about him laying his head on your lap while you told him this fairy tale almost a fractured fairy tale for sure but still there was something very nurturing about it and I mean he was a kid he was very young yeah, I mean, I, I was very, very influenced in fairy tale imagery, actually. It's something that I'm really interested in, you know, those kind of um, narratives we carry in our blood, mm -hmm. I think. Um, at least, you know, if you're of Western European origin, those sort of Grimm's fairy tales. Well, I mean, they've come from China, a lot of them, haven't they? Yeah. So, and um, I was I was more interested in um, fairy tales at the, be at the beginning of the process of writing. There was a lot of that imagery when... Um, but Caden was actually called um, Caden at the beginning because I thought it was reminiscent of Kay in The Snow Queen. And, you okay. know, that the scene at, at the very beginning with, you know, the kiss in the snow. Um, and, and also because Caden, you know, for the accent as well, um, <laughs> and the cadence of his speech. But yeah, like I was really interested in fairy tales. I'm still really interested in them. The book I'm working on at the moment, I'm trying to sort of um, pair off and sort of integrate um, 
themes from fairy tales in that I think they're fascinating and you talk about this a lot throughout the book but I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the idea of wanting to see what men were like with no women around and people reminding you that you are there therefore there are women around but whenever I reread that line I keep thinking about how a lot of time women bury or conceal themselves so much that they don't even consider themselves to be that you're like I'm just a person I'm not a woman in the sense that they are men and I am a woman and therefore it's not an issue I'm just a journalist I'm not a woman yeah I think it's really interesting the way the sexes interact with each other um especially you know thinking about the way women who don't consort with men at all are often erased um, in life and in law. You know, if you think of the treatment of lesbians, say they're really at the bottom of the heap because mm. there is this idea um, in society that a woman is only worth something um, if, if she interacts with men. I was interested in seeing what um, men were like without women there, but of course, you know, I never got to do it. If you take the project on those terms, it is a failure because I was there and, you know, it's the Schrodinger sort of paradox you know when you've got an observer standing there you're going to affect the outcome and I did affect the outcome um yeah I mean I didn't really learn anything good about men though I will say that like it put me off them a lot it almost went like exposure therapy you know I went up to Aberdeen obsessed with men and thinking that I had to have a man and that I was incomplete without one and then I saw so much of them over the next six months I came back and I was like ugh. Well, some of the most relatable parts of this book for me were one the part where you're describing all of your tinder interactions I stopped and I had to just read it to all of my friends I was like look you want to go to the UK you want to go to all these places where you think men are better listen to Tabitha and everything that she has to say about it <laughs> it's it's really universal I don't know if you follow um by Felipe um on mm -hmm. Instagram um, and it's, you know, they, they screenshot, like, I mean, it's an American thing, but they, and it's, it's just the same. It's, they, they sort of screenshot all the really horrible Tinder and app exchanges you get. Um, it does seem to bring out the worst in men. I think it's because, um, I think, you know, back in the day when you met people through people, there was that net of social expectation. You know, you couldn't be a completely dog shit person because you yeah. knew in common and you know there would be that element of social shame and your friends disapproving whereas now if you meet people in a vacuum you you can act as badly as you like and then you cut them off and there's no comeback and also I think particularly for men um there's this notion that there is an endless supply of women yeah easy reach and all you have to do is go on your phone I mean it is actually an illusion because once you've been I mean I was on tinder I think three times in the six month period I was up there you know I okay. would so I would, I would get fatigued and come off and then go back on again. And you would start seeing the same people over and over again. You'd be like, oh, you again, you know? So there isn't actually, and you know, half the people on there aren't proper people. They're like catfish. Yeah. Certainly I don't yeah. know what it's like, but in, in Britain, I mean, I had, um, I had one boyfriend say to me um, that he saw girls he knew on Tinder, but they weren't them, you know, because you'd look at the bio and it, it would be obvious it wasn't them, but they, they were just stolen pictures. They were just okay. catfishing. Yeah. And, uh, yeah so there's this illusion that there's endless options out there but it is an illusion there isn't but I definitely think I do think men are getting worse for mm. a variety of reasons and I think that, I mean don't forget this book was written about events that happened in 2015 and I think it's I think the apps have got much worse since then from what I understand 
I would occasionally be on them and then I would just get fatigued, <laughs> fatigued from doing nothing. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, I think it's ambient, the fatigue, you know, you just yeah. looking at the same thing over again, the same pictures, the same lines in biographies. And, you know, you see men, and I'm sure they have the same with us as well, but you know, when you see men writing things like, oh, you know, uh, no drama. That's a, that's a big, you know, they almost talk in code. No drama is a big red flag for me because what does it mean? It means that you don't like being shouted at. You don't like somebody, you know, having a problem with anything you do. So no drama was something that I always um, steered clear of. And, you know, even, even if you're not having any contact with these people, just, you know, flipping through these profiles and seeing variations on the same really depressing theme, it, it does wear you down after a while, I think. You talk about that social expectation. Did you find that because you were interacting with men who were either away from home, they obviously have some sort of code amongst themselves when they're on the rig in terms of their working relationships, but when they were out at the bar socially, what was their sort of hive mentality like in terms of the women that would come around to those bars? I think they generally tried to show off in front of each other, but certainly you wouldn't get anything out of them in an interview sense. I stopped bothering with group interviews after a while because even though they were fun to do, they didn't yield any information because, you know, they they didn't want, if they're in a group, they don't want to be the one that starts, you know, sort of flapping their mouth to a journalist. So there's that yeah. sort of code. It's like, you know, <clears throat> don't be, don't be, don't be that guy who, you know, sort of can't hold his drink and can't hold his tongue. But, you know, the ones to get were the ones on their own. And then they mm -hmm. tell you everything. Like, yeah. you know, you get on a certain day and they tell you everything. And some of those men I still think about today, you know, I still think about them and think, I wonder if he ever got that thing sorted out. I wonder how his marriage is. I wonder how he's doing now. Because some of the interviews, not many of them, because not many people are good interviewees, but some, some of them are naturals. And those interviews have stayed with me forever. Can you talk about some of the other men like uh, Saeed, who you ended up having friendly platonic relationships with, and there were people there that you spent time with because you also talk about how when you picked up your life and to leave all your problems behind, you also left all of your friends behind. And sometimes you have to do that to figure out your things and work on what you need to work on, but then you realize how lonely it can be. And sometimes it's necessary, but it was comforting to see. And I was happy to know that you did have friends out there. One of the things we've seen, everybody's seen over the past two years is the importance of friendship and the importance of that, you know, sort of platonic um, expectationless social contact. You know, people take it for granted. I left my mm -hmm. friends behind in 2015, like they were nothing. I just thought, oh, it's fine. I'll make some other friends up there or I'll do without friends. Um, but actually, you know, I've been in London on and off for a decade and those connections that I've made down there, I really felt the loss of them um, when I didn't have them anymore. You simply cannot replicate friendships of that length and, you know, sort of intimacy within six months. You can't. Mm. And, um, and I think we all forgot that until the pandemic hit and then everybody was sort of atomized to a certain extent. And people did start to see that actually friendships are every bit as important as romantic relationships, family relationships. And Saeed and I actually stayed in touch up until um, 
this time last year we were still in touch we never saw each other again but you know we were in touch on like whatsapp things we both watch love island i don't know have you got love island in america yeah we do yeah we, we, we both would watch that so we text each other every year when love island was on them but you know i sent him the book um in the post and i've never heard from him since and i'm like mm, did he ever get it did he hate it i can't yeah. imagine he hated his portrayal in it because he was like the only nice person in it he really <laughs> We haven't spoken since, but I did love him and I did love his friend. I thought, you know, it was really nice yeah. to actually have just, just to be able to, you know, hang out with some people and for it not to be about work or about that slightly sort of icky, crazy sexual connection that I had to leverage to get information out of the workers. You know, it was, it was just nice to hang around with two young men who have no agenda. And yeah, I could they're... be genderless in return, you know? Yeah, I was just about to say that, and and you said it, when you have no obligations, you can, you don't need anything from anyone, and you're just existing together. Yeah, and it was, you have to have those, you know, I mean, one of the problems with my life in Aberdeen was it was entirely transactional. Every single conversation I had, pretty much, was a transaction. It was, you know, a transfer of power back and forth. I wanted something, they wanted something, and it was this negotiation, like, what are you going to give me, and what am I going to give in return, and it was quite nice to have a relationship, you know, that was completely free of all that. When you started writing, did you always know that this was going to be a memoir or was it not until you became a more central part of the story that it had to shift a little bit? Yeah, it, it mutated while I was up there. In fact, I started writing the memoir before Caden and I broke up because something mm -hmm. I've always done um, when I feel um, overwhelmed by things and I think a lot of writers do this, is write them down because it's a way of getting control over them, you know? I mean, it's the whole principle of therapy, isn't it? If mm -hmm. you make, you know, meaningless events into a narrative, you, you do get a feeling of, of control over them. And that's what I started doing. You know, I had no friends up there really, no one to talk to. He was being awful. So I just went to a cafe one day and sat down and wrote it and wrote it all out. And then I looked up at the clock and like two hours had gone by and I thought, okay, this is it, this is the book. So I started it, I'm, it started off, I mean, the very beginning, it was fiction. Then I decided to make it work a nonfiction. And then in the end, it became this sort of weird kind of Frankenstein sort of mashup um, of the two. And, you know, two agents actually turned it down. Before I got to Tracy um, Bowen at the Wiley Agency, two agents were like, no, it, it's, it's, it's this horrible hybrid beast. It's neither one thing or the other. Take one bit out or take the other bit out. But you can't have this sort oh. of reportage memoir. It really won't work. I personally think that's exactly why it works. <laughs> People have said that since, you know, every review has mentioned its hybrid nature, but, you know, nobody gets it until they get it. That's been my no. experience. Yeah, I feel like it would be doing it a disservice uh, because if it were to be nonfiction, interviews, 500-page doorstopper about oil rigs and all of those guys, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have worked because the best way to understand something is to dive into it no pun intended. The bit that really interested me anyway was not so much the mechanics of getting oil out of the ground. I'm still not very interested in that. It was how this working pattern impacted on the workers' home lives because, you know, that was what mm. I'd seen in my friends. You know, they didn't settle down until like their mid-30s, which is really rare in the provinces in Britain. You know, that's like 10 years too late in the provinces in Britain to settle down. You know, they took a lot of drugs. They drank a lot. You know, they spent a lot of money. I really, that's the bit I'm I didn't really care about what happened on the rig because if things are going, it, you know, offshore is a bit like an aeroplane in that, you know, when things go wrong, they go really wrong, but statistically it's fairly safe. And when yeah. every 
nothing goes right, it's just boring. So what I was really interested in was the way in which um, their money influenced power dynamics at home. And then I found that I was living it, you know, and I, that's, that wasn't my intention, but that's what happens. And I thought, well, this is it, this is the book. I mean, this relationship obviously doesn't have legs because he's like a toddler in a smallish man's body. So I'll just, I'll start writing about it. I'll start using it. Did you feel like he was a toddler when you met him? Uh, no. <laughs> um, I, no, I, no, I had a completely made up idea of who he was um, when I met him because um, I think, you know, writers especially are prone to do that, but everybody does that a bit, you know, when, yeah. and you know, when you're sort of, you know, dating and things, you do trick out your stall to like, please customers don't you like I'm sure I acted different too but he was very interesting because he was the person I've met um in my life who most had no personality at all he had the closest thing to no personality at all and obviously you know falling in love is just projecting all of your garbage onto somebody anyway so if that person has no personality you know if that person has no shape if they can like shift and move about they are the ideal canvas on which to project um, and so the process of falling in love with them is very, very easy because, you know, there's no psychological kind of hard bits to butt up against. You can just, you know, they see you projecting and they make themselves into the image you want until, of course, they get bored of being that image, which inevitably they do because, well, because human beings get bored quite easily. And I know like 50 guys that I could swap in that could, that could be him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he is a he is a type, um, and that's why I wasn't too worried about him being identified, because that type of man is really common in every country. I think another part that I still think about just the way that you wrote it—it it was very cathartic and vindicating for me for many circumstances in my life. Was after you guys had broken up and you hadn't seen him in a while, you end up back at the bar and you're talking to someone. And they mention his name and that they've seen him walking around and you still haven't seen him. And you just talked about that feeling of like, how dare he and <laughs> how dare he have the audacity to just be walking around as if nothing happened. I think that's like every woman can relate to. It's just like, why are you even alive? Like, what's the point of you? And your life seems completely unchanged. And, and mine's, mine's totally different. And it's really unfair because I do think actually it's a very broad generalization but I, I do think um you know I think women women seem to be more upset about breakups initially this is purely anecdotal but just what I've observed over my 40 years is women seem to be more obsessed initially over breakups and men are like yay I'm free and they'll go out and they'll drink and they'll take advantage of their singleness but then women will do the work to get over it in that period and then six months later it will hit the man and then he'll be all sad. And then that's when you get like the late night text, you know, I'm sorry, I miss you. <laughs> I mean, I think that's, that's, that seems to be the process of every heterosexual breakup I've known about that, you know, the women will grieve right at the beginning and the men will have this sort of delayed process and then they'll start sending, you know, sad texts. But by that point, you've moved on. You mentioned earlier that if this were to be considered an experiment, it would have been a failed one because it, didn't work out how it was intended and it never could have and you also say that you're not a journalist anymore because that didn't work and then you wrote a book so what are you now are you a writer are you still a journalist are you a hybrid what do you think 
I'm, what I do you think? myself like a hybrid form now, yeah. I still do bit, bits and pieces of journalism, but I'm lucky because I only, at the moment, I'm only really doing the bits and pieces of journalism I really want to. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, like I do, I do bits and pieces, but, you know, I used to have to work really, really hard as a journalist. Like, you know, I was really low paid. And, you know, when I freelanced, I had to, it was more like journalism, you know, I just, I couldn't afford to take my time over pieces. Whereas now I'm lucky in that I get to pick and choose. And I've just done a really long form piece for Esquire, which is coming out next month um, about a murder in my hometown. Um, I've also done an essay for Guardian, which is coming out next month about cocaine, um, which was actually commissioned because of, you know, those last few lines about coke in the last chapter. Um, So yeah, I I still do bits and pieces, but I don't break my back doing it anymore, um, which is nice. Because it is, it's really hard for like, you know, people criticize journalists all the time, um, you know, for their lack of fact checking and, you know, their lack of like process, I suppose. But what they don't factor in is that um, most freelance journalists are poor, they're poor and they, they, they've got to take on um, too much work really just to keep their heads above water, especially if they're in London. And, you know, there's this whole kind of industry now um, started by the Daily Mail, I think, um, sort of a decade or so ago, where they will coax um, female freelance journalists into these sort of confessional pieces, and they'll wave a lot of money or comparatively big sums of money in their face to do it, and then they'll put it up, and then they'll invite everyone to come along and, you know, say awful things in the comment. They're basically trolling their readers, like, oh, look at this woman with a yeah. stupid story. And there's a whole sort of subsection of the industry, um, which is is like that now, basically. And it's, you know, it's, it's particularly women. Um, but yeah, it's, it's um, a bit of a sort of, I don't know, like it's a bit of a privacy impact, really. You know, once you get into it and you get into selling off bits of your life, it's really hard to get out of. And that's something I've had to think about really carefully, um, you know, since publishing the book, like... Um, always editors want you to put more of yourself in your work if you've done it once but it's something I it's something I'm not overly keen on on doing yeah it just it continues it continues to sit with you and then you always have to be thinking about it is is that something you ever thought about at in the beginning or at any point or you thought maybe you were making a mistake or did you regret the extent to which you became a central part of this story yeah, um, I never really, I mean, obviously you do consider it, but I've always really thought of it like this. And I still think of it like this with um, my journalism. It's like the bit of yourself you sell is like a, a property you'd buy to rent out. You know, it's an asset. Whereas the bit of yourself that you live with, that's your home. So say somebody comes along and says they hate the bit of you that's in your writing, and you seem like an awful person, etc. That's like somebody vandalizing the house that you rent out as an asset, you know, like it's, you know, it's a bit annoying and you'd rather it didn't happen, but it's not a desecration the way it would be if somebody did that in your home. So you've yeah. got to sort of psychically divide the two selves, I think. And the self that I sell off is, you know, sort of subtly different from the real me. You mentioned that the next thing you're working on is fairy tale esque. Um, now that you've written your first book, do you want to keep writing? Writing a lot of books? <laughs> um, I actually only got three books in me. Okay. <laughs> I don't think I've got loads of books in me, but the second one is a novel. I'm just trying something different to see if I can do it. Um, and it's about a, um, well, what we used to call a hysterical contagion. I think they call it conversion disorder now in a girls' school on a marsh. Um, and I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm having fun with it, you know, I'm, I'm trying to work in a lot of that 
you know, fairy tale sort of element, but also I live in a very boggy place. Mm -hmm. um, I've always been fascinated with bogs and marshes and kind of, you know, that sort of liminal landscape. So I'm getting to work a lot of that into. And also, so like remembering sort of my own adolescence has been sort of fun slash not fun. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I'm kind of using the building blocks of real life um, to create a made up story because that's all I know how to do really. Um, but um, yeah, no, it's fun. I'm having fun with it. I'm very, very slow. My process is very slow. So I think I'll always be poor. I will never be <laughs> quick enough to make a proper writing out of living, but it's, I've just accepted now that that's the way I do things. Is there anything that you're either reading or things that you're watching either as research or something that's just giving you comfort in this time of pandemic and chaos? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I don't really separate, um, you know, my consumption of culture in sort of work, not work, because I think even if you're reading books or watching TV series, they've got absolutely nothing to do with your work. If they're good, you're still improving your yeah. craft um, by consuming them. So uh, in terms of TV, I've just finished Succession. And like every other writer now, I'm just obsessed with it. I'm just starting yeah. it again, beginning now. <laughs> um, I'm reading a lot of Olivia Lang at the moment. I don't know if you know her work, but I just... Mm -hmm. I, she's brilliant and I'm reading The Lonely City at the moment I wish I wish I'd had that book with me in Aberdeen it would have been a huge consolation but unfortunately it only came out a year after Aberdeen but it's it's such a brilliant book and I can't recommend it highly enough um and I'm reading a lot of work you know I'm reading um a book called The Sleeping Beauties at the moment and I actually oh hang on I might have it on me um, I don't want to get the author's name wrong so it's this is the book um The Sleeping Beauties it's by a neuroscientist called Suzanne O'Sullivan. Um, mm. It's all about um, conversion disorders and inexplicable illnesses, what we used to call psychosomatic illnesses yeah. all around the world. Um, and it's, it's fascinating, you know, she goes from Kazakhstan to Nicaragua um, to Sweden, investigating um, these kind of cases of sort of group illnesses that have no kind of organic source but are nevertheless very real so that's that's that that's what I'm reading for work at the moment and you said that you're trying this new form with the novel and I love that you said that that you know you're trying I feel like when you say that you're trying something not that you're doing something um that takes like a different level of awareness but I wanted to see if there's something you've always wanted to try a form you love or a medium that you wish you could do but you're not quite sure if you could pull it off or you don't even know if you'd want to try it well I don't even know if I can do a novel I've always had to think <laughs> anything up and I've got no imagination so I think in trying to do a novel like I'm having a go at a form that I'm not at all you know I really didn't think I could write a book before I wrote a book but now as yeah. soon as to do that I really thought I'd hit the ground running with this one but now I'm just like oh yeah but you can't make things up so I have that conversation with myself <laughs> in the future there's certain books that I'd really really like to bring to the screen but that's something really um far off like I'm really um very obsessed with a book called Bad Blood by um Lorna Sage it's uh, nothing to do with the case that's going on at the moment it's a book that's about 20 years old I don't know whether you know it it's mm -hmm. um it's a memoir um about her girlhood in post-war Shropshire and I'm so obsessed with the book and I really long to bring it to the screen, but um, that's something that's a long way off. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today, Tabitha. It was such a pleasure. I love this book so much. I've sent so many people to go read it and we have plenty of copies in the store. So for all our listeners, you can head to Skylight Books to grab your copy of Sea State. 
or you can order online at skylightbooks.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.